The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest, a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. How are you doing? Not too bad, Father. Not as fine as you might think. Um, my voice is still a bit gravelly, and I apologize for that. Okay. But I do appreciate all the prayers. I thank all of our viewers for their prayers, not only from myself, but from many, many others who are sick right now. So please keep them all in your prayers. Absolutely. It's, it's a long list, but God knows them all, and he knows if you pray for them, he'll, he'll uh, grant relief to them all. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, Father, we had a couple topics on the agenda for tonight. Um, first, though, is uh, tomorrow, January 6th, we have, of course, the Feast of the Epiphany. A uh, very great, uh, great feast day of mm -hmm. the church, but also the one-year anniversary of the uh, quote-unquote insurrection of uh, of twenty twenty-one. Uh, any reflections on that, Father? One year since the uh, since the insurrection and the Capitol riots. Well, yes, of course there there are reflections on that, uh, and um, it is. Uh, it's still a great mystery to me after all this time in one year uh, why um, Donald Trump actually encouraged this gathering of his supporters in the, in the Capitol. I don't think he had any intention of uh, it becoming a co-celebra or a, uh, a huge issue. I think he was just trying to rally support and rally the spirits of the people and but it's, it puzzles me that he didn't suspect that it would be used to cause trouble. Um, uh, as soon as I heard that he was having this great rally in Washington, D.C. on January 6th of last year, the very day that the Congress was meeting right now, to, uh, to um, basically decide the presidency, right? Um, I, I thought it was trouble, that this this is not a good idea, you know. We have to let them deal with this and, and not bring any, any form of uh, political activism or pressure on this at all. And I was actually warning people away, even ahead of time, saying, don't go. Right. I said, this, this is just really looking for trouble by going to Washington, D.C. in this way at that time. So... Um, Anyway, so it didn't really come as a surprise to find out that what actually happened was, and I'm convinced it's true, uh, that the Democrats arranged for a, a massive uh, scam, uh, an operation that they could use to capitalize, so to speak, on the uh, enthusiasm of some Trump supporters uh, to lure them actually, uh, off, off sides, 
and then cry foul and scream insurrection, insurrection, insurrection. I'm convinced it's true myself. I think there's plenty of evidence to show it too. I mean, the idea of an insurrection with a, a handful of people who are being, in many cases, escorted and ushered into the building and even through the building by law enforcement. Um, uh, there are so many aspects of this that are just incredibly uh, bizarre, but all of them point to uh, a real put-up job. Uh, the fact that uh, President Trump actually encouraged uh, increased uh, uh, police presence for that day, and Nancy Pelosi personally uh, vetoed it <clears throat> and rejected it. I mean, uh, what was that all about? Um, but there are many, many other other very, very suspicious things about this. Um, the whole thing seems to be that it was simply choreographed um, to, um, you know, that they, they could they could immediately, uh, cert, cert, first of all, shut down the process of uh, that they feared might lock them out of power, um, but also. Um, wreak havoc in such a way in our nation that they could be screaming insurrection, insurrection all this past year. And there would be only people who would just blindly believe what they're told, despite all of the evidence to the contrary. Um, even to the point of setting up this, this, this Stalinist show trial that Nancy Pelosi is presiding over in uh, Congress right now, or as a result of, uh, you know, as an affiliate with Congress for some kind of investigation um, again, all of it just smacks entirely of just Marxist uh, tactics and um, <coughs> and uh, just complete dishonest, uh, um, should I say, railroading of our country. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, yes, there are some certainly some reflections. I mean, the Democrats getting on and the media getting on and saying, oh, this is the greatest threat to our democracy. And they're using the same words, all of them across the board. All of these commentators using the same language. <coughs> well, no wonder they're all owned by the same entities. They're all owned by the same, ultimately by the same sources that feed them. Their material. Uh, the fact that they're all using exactly the same verbiage is not surprising. They're reading from the same script. <clears throat> and uh, to say that this is the greatest threat to our democracy since uh, like Pearl Harbor or since uh, uh, you know World War Two, World War One, uh, who knows? <laughs> you know, on and on they were going on and on about it. That's that's absolute nonsense. Um, and I think any any honest person, um, objective person, could see that it is just complete nonsense. But they've got the uh, media uh, talking heads on their side, and so they can keep pushing and pushing. <coughs> you know, I mean, Hitler and Stalin had the same idea. <coughs> you tell a lie once, it, it's just a lie. But tell it a million times, it becomes the truth. <coughs> you can program people. There's a, a lot of talk going on right now about the um, kind of psychotic formation, like this uh, this psychosis formation of a population. <laughs> Excuse me. And this is definitely part of the process. Mm -hmm. 
the the drum beat, the 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 constant uh, uh, um, hammering of the message home with the same language over and over again, almost hypnotically, getting people hypnotically focusing on this on this point, and uh, so that they cannot think rationally about it, uh, even if they're confronted with facts, the facts contradict the narrative and the narrative uh, they just hypnotically uh, repeat it they hypnotically believe it and this is a part of a problem we have right now because you know in the past we've tried to form a generation each generation we've tried to form the generation for liberty we tried to form them with an understanding of our American um, Constitution our Bill of Rights We've tried to form in them a sense of the actually God-given rights, and not government-given privileges, but God-given rights. <clears throat> but you see, we now have formed a generation which is largely ignorant of all these things. And when you, when you raise a generation, when the government itself and its government schools raises a generation in a certain way to be subservient to government and all the government narrative. Government science, government education, government health, government this, and the government is the source of all. Then you have a generation that really is, is ripe for despotism. They're ripe for slavery. They are born for slavery. When you look around the world and you see populations which go from one dictator to another, one strongman to another, right? one tyrant to another. You get the understanding, these are populations that are trained in this way of thinking. And they, they really can't govern themselves. They, they, they don't even know where to begin, and they have no intention of doing so. All they know is what it has been to live under some... Um, you know, uh, what do you call it, sheikh or some strong man, uh, tyrant, uh, some il duce or man of steel, Stalin or Hitler, der Führer. That's all they know. It's all they've ever known, perhaps, for centuries, generation after generation. And... Um, what do you think happens as one generation goes on and become and it gives way to another generation? They just perpetuate the same process. <clears throat> well, you know, the idea of having God-given rights and that God created each each one of us individually, and each one of us has uh, that right to life given by God, and um, this is something that is so deeply rooted in the American character um, that, uh, you know, you, you'd think that, well, we, we're passing it on from one generation to another. But the fact is, when you, when you uh, turn the education of the young over to a, a government despots, and they take over education, which they did, basically, in this country, creating the Department of Education, which has no place in our Constitution, really. Um, and they began educating a generation not for liberty, but a generation is now being raised for slavery. Um, who doesn't know the most basic things about um, 
the American Constitution, uh, you know, uh, any, anything American. And what they do know, uh, what they, they've been taught to hate it and despise it, detest it. So I fear for this generation coming up. Now, there are some very, very excellent good people, young people, very, uh, very, what should I say, dedicated young people. Uh, I know them. I see them, right? They have strong faith in God and um, a love for our Lord Jesus Christ and a dedication and a love for the country, too. But the problem is, you see, you have this enormous, enormous number of young people of their own generation who don't have any of that. And if they have anything at all, have any, they're either totally apathetic and think of nothing but just their phones, what's on the screen in their iPhone, or if they're passionate about anything, it's, it's, it's actually out of hatred for their country uh, because they've been fed lies. The, the younger generation coming up now has to overcome that in order to fight for their, their liberties in order to fight for their faith. Um, it's a much more arduous task than breaking from England <laughs> back in 1776, um, when the generation itself is so completely degenerate in many cases. You know? So I feel uh, very concerned about these young people, and I, and I certainly have to pray for them, ask God to help them and have mercy on them and motivate them to be faithful to him, to live for God, family, and country. Because when I say live for God, I want them to have the true faith, uh, the true Catholic faith, the traditional Catholic faith, that is the one true faith. And without that, I'm afraid that uh, their efforts are going to not be blessed and not be successful at all. Mm -hmm. Father, so. if, uh, if, if this so-called insurrection was really a, uh, you know, the, the greatest threat to our democracy, whatever that means. We're not supposed to have a democracy in America. It wasn't set up to be that way. That's a great, uh, terrible, terrible thing. Um, but if that was really the case, wouldn't we have seen some some remnants of that um, when, in fact, the only real riots or uh, anything that we've seen have been from Democrats and Democrat cities and Democrat groups, um, leftist groups who have who have been, been rioting? And isn't this typical behavior of, of, of liars, Father, people who will accuse others yeah. of, of the very things that they it's themselves... It's typical of leftist, Marxist, communist liars. And they're, they're all, I mean, leftist, communist, and, and Marxist are all liars, right? It's the very warp and woof of the, the left, really. But you're right, Tom. I mean, you know, the, the people see, well, they don't see, they're not allowed to see by the media what's going on, what has been going on in Portland or Seattle or places like that. Uh, or other cities around the country, you know. We're told that Antifa is a very, really, they're just anti-fascist. They're, they're well-meaning people, you know. They would never raise a hand to anybody. Never heard a fly, right? Uh, same with BLM, right? You know, the, we're, we're, we're fed this propaganda, but the evidence is, is there. People who actually live in these cities, you know, they can't be deceived. They know what's going on. And... Um, so you see the contrast between how the Democrats have handled everything, uh, not condemning, even encouraging this, this rampant violence and destruction in our cities. And on the other hand, you have a handful of people, you know, wearing, you know, carrying the American flag. They're not armed with any weapons of any kind. They mean no, no harm to anyone. 
And the city police officers taking barricades away and ushering them into the, <laughs> the capital. You'd, you'd think so, anybody with a lick of sense would say, this doesn't make sense. There's something wrong here. But again, uh, depends on whose team you're rooting for and whose side you're on. Uh, so, um, you know, this is, this is what we're up against right now because it's uh, unfortunately uh, an, awful, an awfully large number of our people have been uh, uh, so completely mesmerized by the propaganda that uh, they're simply incapable of rational thought. And how does one overcome that propaganda, Father, when we see constantly on every you news outlet? You have to tell the truth. You just have to keep telling the truth, telling the truth, telling the truth. You have to keep telling the truth and hope that uh, it gets through. Um, this is what we're being told by those who recognize the problem and say you have to keep telling the truth. But the, the question comes in, well, Okay, you keep telling the truth, but that takes courage because telling the truth, uh, you have to speak truth to power because um, these people have actually lied their way into power. I'm convinced, I mean, it's my, my, my personal opinion of, of the matter, but <laughs> I think there is evidence of it, right? And I think there are a lot of people who would agree with me. But now that they have power, um, there's a great risk in speaking the truth. First of all, you have to find a way to get the truth out, and then to get it out, you risk being silenced or worse, right? Um, first of all, being marginalized, being denounced, being defamed, being imprisoned even, right? Or worse. Um, so uh, they don't like being exposed, obviously. Um, where does the courage come from? First of all, we think of the power of the Holy Ghost. The power of the Holy Ghost, for us, the reason why our Lord has sent him to us, is to enlighten our minds to know the truth and to inspire us with love for the truth, and love for God. So the Holy Ghost enlightens our minds, our intelligence to know the truth, and inspires our wills with love for God to act upon the truth. And so here is the key to our, what, what our faith must provide us, what our prayers must provide. They must call upon the Holy Ghost. They must open our, our hearts and our, our minds to the, the grace of the Holy Ghost, to this inspiration of the spirit of truth, and to a love of the truth, a love of God, to act upon it. So, uh, you know, if ever there was a need for prayer, it is certainly now. And... Um, if, if we find anyone anywhere courageously standing up and speaking the truth to power in spite of all of the obstacles and all the threats against, directed against them, we know there has to be a grace of God behind it. Especially if they're speaking the truth humbly and, and, uh, and charitably, but persistently. There has to be a grace at work there. And where does that grace come from? It has to come from the prayers of people like you like me, I hope, who are praying and begging, begging God to provide these graces that are needed right now. Um, so, in any case, um, we have to stand up against, against the lie. Everyone who stands up against the lie and contradicts the lie 
is a very, has a very powerful uh, presence that anyone would dare, dare withstand or dare confront the lie. Uh, it shows that the, the lie has not completely diluted the entirety of mankind. In other words, it's showing the lie and the liar, Satan, that he still has not won, that he does not have that absolute control that he demands, that he, that he, he uh, thirsts for, that he craves, right? And he will unlearn, unleash his hatred against the, the, the teller of the truth, just as he has a hatred for the truth itself. So it takes an enormous amount of grace from God to be able to stand in the face of this and to stand as one um, telling the truth. But you know, when we, all of our, all of our heroic stories that we tell involve courage, involve great courage in the face of adversity. And the greatest stories are the stories of that lone individual, right? Standing in, in the face of this, uh, there are iconic pictures we have today. We recognize that a lone individual is standing in the face of overwhelming opposition. <laughs> and God, by the, His grace, has called us to be here now to do that. Thank God for that. And He's going to provide the graces necessary for it. Uh, so um, we, we have to have that confidence that we pray for this. We're praying for exactly what God wants. But by praying for it, we're not telling God what he needs to do as though he doesn't know. What we're doing when we're praying for it, essentially, is we're removing the obstacles that are in us by our prayer, humbling ourselves before him, opening the way into our hearts and our souls for his grace to come, uh, as it most certainly will. So we have to pray uh, assiduously for these graces necessary. Um, we, you know, we talk about the graces of faith and hope and charity, the virtues, what we call the theological virtues. But then extending from them uh, and subordinate to them, we have the, the uh, prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance, the moral virtues. You can acquire them by working for them. Or you can pray for them and God can infuse them by grace into your soul, or both. God actually wants us to pray for the graces of prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. But he also wants us to practice them, to cultivate them at the same time. Well, again, as I said, if there's ever a need for prayer, it's now. <coughs> I'd say the same. If there's ever a need for the virtues of faith, hope, and charity, and the virtues of prudence, and justice, and fortitude, and temperance, it is right now. We have to practice those virtues. Mm -hmm. And Father, speaking of... Uh fortitude and courage and the, the, the necessity of it. Uh, something else that's going on right now in our country is the uh, Supreme Court is apparently, hopefully, um, reconsidering uh, the, the Roe v. Wade, Roe v. Wade uh, case. And uh, Father, do you, uh, do you see anything good coming out of this? Do you have any optimism in this, uh, in the Supreme Court? Considering. Well, I will always have optimism as long as I have faith, right? <clears throat> if you have faith, you have hope. And hopefully, if you, have, if you have faith and hope, you have charity too, right? So I, my trust is not in the Supreme Court justices. My trust is in God. Um, and um, 
I believe that there are some justices who have shown in the past that they have the fortitude necessarily to stand on principle. I believe there are other justices who have shown in the past that they do not have that fortitude. And one other justice even said so, that they do not have the fortitude to stand on principle. That's quite a criticism of one justice of the Supreme Court for others. Um, but I, I believe that there is a veritable army of prayer out there right now, praying God's mercy uh, to fortify the weak. Um, we just pray that their principles are correct, and we pray that God will give them the fortitude to, uh, um, well, to represent the truth, to follow through, to act upon the truth. And actually, the Supreme Court is not only facing the question of this Roe versus Wade. You know, you know, Tom, when you get right down to it, everything that we're seeing right now, everything that's happened to our country right now, and I mean every, every evil thing that we are facing and dreading, every evil thing that is threatening our country right now, ultimately goes back to the abortion. It goes back to the abortion question. That's why we are here now. That's why we're in this situation right now. Um, because um, seven Supreme Court justices in 1973 decided to play philosopher rather than jurist. And started to uh, introduce philosophical questions about uh, the potential of human life, potential human life in the womb and all the rest. Nothing to do with American jurisprudence, right? They just invented that. Blackman and the rest of them, right? Very anti-Catholic man, by the way, Blackman. And um, so, um, you know, but the problem is we let that stand. We let that stand. And yet, why did we let it stand? Because of the bishops. The American bishops were so compromised after Vatican II. They were so completely... Uh, what can you say? I mean, the word effeminate, they, they, they just had no backbone. They had no strength, um, no conviction. In fact, they were afraid of being thought as the leaders in the anti-abortion movement. Right? They didn't want it to look like a Catholic issue. They'd be embarrassed about that. Or they might as well have said, we're, we, we would be embarrassed about Jesus Christ. We're embarrassed. We don't want to look get too close to him either, right? They might as well have said that. They're practically saying that now with their ecumenism. It's a, it was an absolute disgrace, absolute betrayal. It's their fault. It's not their fault, really, but you get right down to it. That's why the country has gone the way it is. Because the, the, those who are supposed to be the shepherds have proven to be the, uh, either mercenaries or wolves. And, um, and that's why we're in the situation right now. You can't have 60-some million children put to death horribly uh, for a demonic purpose, basically, uh, uh, for the sake of uh, just worldly, entirely worldly considerations, right? For, this, for the worship of this world. For the worship of this world. You cannot have 60 million children butchered in a country and an entire party a, a political party dedicated to that, dedicated to that cause. Above all, identified with that cause of aborting children.
and applauding itself when they when they pass abortion legislation, right? boasting of it, glorying in it. How evil can one get? And that's where we are. Everything we're looking at now goes right back to that. So, um, you know, we, America has to be purified. She has to be purified somehow. And, um, well, if it's possible that America can be purified, and hopefully this will be this means of doing so, but good people are going to have to get stand up and declare themselves because there is no middle ground anymore. Um, so here's the Supreme Court faced with this question right now. Right? And what's the Supreme Court going to do? It's not just what the Supreme Court does, of course. The Supreme Court can make the right decision and uh, come out and just say, look, there is no right in the Constitution for abortion, period, right? And throw it back on the states. But then the battle continues to the states, too. But there are already states that have already uh, declared themselves, governors and legislatures, and have declared where they stand on this issue. <laughs> and we can see that they fall kind of along the red-blue lines defined by the media. Um, but at least it gives us, uh, you know, a fighting chance to say no. This is wrong. And um, there you'll have the great divide. But um, it has to be done. I mean, the, the, the stand has to be taken if there's going to be any redemption. Um, another issue that is coming up right now, at the same time, ironically, not ironically, is the question of the vaccine mandates of Joe Biden resident of the United States of America, and uh, whether he can rule this country by mandate, whether he can rule every single individual person in this country by mandate, and mandate demanding that you be injected with some kind of biological experimental uh, uh, serum, uh, does he or does he not have the right to mandate that? Uh, according to the Constitution of the States of America. It's, it's ironic that this, these two issues have come together before the Supreme Court. Right? So uh, if a woman has a right to murder her baby in her womb because she wants a career, or she's not ready to just take care of that baby, or which isn't wanted, or whatever, uh, and if that makes sense to people, then I guess it would make sense to people that, yes, uh, whoever happens to get the power in the country, uh, live in the White House, can start mandating uh, life and death to everybody, including vaccinations, right? to everybody. If you can't, you can't, uh, you can't work without it, right? You can't even go to the supermarket and get food if you don't have it, so on and so forth, right? And you're being marginalized and eventually going to be probably penned up in some kind of holding tank somewhere because you're not vaccinated. Uh, you know, if, if one can, concedes the premise of abortion, why would one not concede the, the premise of mandated vaccines and just say, okay, our country is going to be ruled by mandates of a degenerate? Um, uh, who is basically a tool of power of people behind the scenes. Right? So uh, anyway, this is the situation we're dealing with. Now we have to pray very seriously here. 
because these two issues are here. There's a reason why they're coming up together right now. It's a challenge to you. It's a challenge to me and all people who have any faith and hope and love for God. It's a challenge to us to rise to the occasion right now and confront this right now, because it might be our last opportunity before we go over the falls. <laughs> um, so in any case, yeah, courage is needed, but conviction is needed. Conviction and then the courage to act on the convictions. Mm -hmm. Need leadership. That's the hardest part, though, getting leadership, because even if there is leadership, leadership is being stifled right now. But true leadership would find a way to get through. True leadership would find a way to get past all of that. All of that uh, uh, media uh, domination, right? And um, that's, again, it's a matter of God's grace providing that. God is the one who sent the prophets. And um, God is the one who, who sent the patriarchs and so on and so forth. God is the one who sends them. And ultimately, that's what, that's what we need from God, is that we need that leadership now. Mm -hmm. Father, something that's, that's often uh, talked about in this day and age with all of these issues going on is um, the, the prospects of some sort of, of civil war um, with mm -hmm. all of the, these very real, very serious issues that, that, we're, mm -hmm. that we're being faced with now. And, you know, you mentioned the, uh, the, the battle of the states and as far as the, the pro-life fight. Um, what, what do you see any prospects of any, any type of, of civil war with all of this going on? And that's a question that's often asked. Well, it could be. Uh, the, it depends on whether the leftists uh, can be turned back and whether they will think, well, we're going to have a go for, for broke. Like we came so close, and this was our last best chance to actually succeed in tyrannizing the entire, and enslaving the entire world. And so we see that we're, uh, we're losing ground. We're going to have to be like a, cage, a cornered animal here, a cornered rabbit animal, and just go berserk, right? Uh, that's what Satan does, right? Um, it could be that they will fight with that tenacity. The other side is, will then the, um, the faithful, I'll just call them the faithful, will they, will they fight with tenacity? Are they willing to, to fight that? And that's a matter of grace, as I say. Could it happen? Yes, it could happen very well, that the leftists, like some rabid, uh, cornered animal, will just uh, uh, decide to um, just completely go, go berserk and just uh, unleash every bit of fury of hell. And uh, it could also be that the faithful um, um, are moved by a grace of God to um, not simply um, fearfully cower before it and give way before it, that they stand their ground against it. Uh, then there would be real trouble. You know, some, sometimes people ask, well, I mean, at, at what point can you actually resist evil? You have a right to defend yourself, right? If you have somebody who's threatening you to, to enslave you or to enslave your children, um, if you have somebody who's thre threatening to rob you of everything you own, such as telling you that you will own nothing and you'll be happy, and this is our great reset, and you're, you're are going to be living under this because we're going to require that of you. Um, 
we are going to impose that upon you. Would you have the right to defend yourself against that? Well, if somebody broke into your house and was saying, we want to take you and sell you and your family into slavery, we're going to steal your daughters and, and sell them into slavery, or would you have a right to defend them? Would you have a right to defend against them? To, would you have a right to kill them if necessary, to prevent them from doing this? Right? If somebody broke into your house and said, look, I, I have a syringe full of this, this uh, toxic substance here, I'm going to start injecting your children with it. Would you have the right to prevent them from doing that? Would you have the right to, to kill them if necessary to prevent them from doing it? There are a lot of people who would say yes. I would say yes. Morally speaking, morally speaking, I would say you would have a right to do that. Um, one might even say a moral obligation to do that, right? Well, here we have an entire apparatus now that is making those threats, that is making exactly those threats. And uh, people ask, at what point uh, would we have the, the moral right and obligation to start resisting this, even unto death if necessary, ours or theirs, you know? At what point would, could it come to that? And personally, I think, morally speaking, I'm not talking about legal, legal, legal matters here, okay? That's a different matter, okay? There's human law and all. I'm talking about moral law here. Morally speaking, I think that one would have a right to do that, uh, certainly, and that uh, in certain cases would even have a moral obligation to do so, to protect the innocent, right? Um, so the, uh, the chips are down here. You know, we really have to, uh, we don't want to do that. We don't want it to come to that, ever, right? We never want it to come to that. I mean, we put alarms on our homes and we stoke, put the, the sign on a stake that this home protected by this uh, security company and so on to prevent that from ever happening, right? About our businesses, we put fences around the businesses, uh, barbed wire, because we don't want to have to. Um, uh, confront anybody, right, uh, who's actually breaking, entering, and threatening. So it's actually a matter of not only protecting ourselves, it's a matter of protecting anybody who would right. possibly, um, you know, plan mayhem and evil against us uh, uh, to discourage them from doing so, because we don't want any harm to come to ourselves and our loved ones or to them either, right? Um, so that's what we want. The problem is, though, that if they insist and they, they are determined uh, to threaten and to carry out their threats, what then? That's, another, that's an issue. Right? And the, the church has a teaching about that, that yes, it is uh, not only permissible, but it is sometimes even morally obligatory to resist. And if that's a physical resistance and it takes, uh, you know, even even a matter of life and death that's, can happen. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, well, Father, something else you wanted to uh, discuss tonight was this. Uh, just a, a matter of days ago, these headlines came out about uh, about NASA and how they uh, apparently hired or at least in, in some way funded, uh, I think, two dozen theologians uh, mm -hmm. to to study this question of, of the impact that discovery of extraterrestrial life would have on, on the people in the world and the world religions today. Mm. Uh, did you, by any chance, Father, get a, get a chance to read through any, any of that? I news? just saw the announcement and read mm. some of uh, the uh, 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 stories about it. You know, it well, they weren't really hired by NASA. It was a, 
uh, research that was uh, funded. But NASA did did uh, fund it somewhat. I understand yes. there was. Uh, yes. I don't think they funded the entire project of twenty four theologians <laughs> being called in from around the world to discuss the the topic of how mankind would react. Some said how world religions would react to the news that life had been discovered on other planets and other parts of the universe. Um, uh, the idea that there is an ET extraterrestrial form of life, whether it be a microbe or even a, an intelligent civilization. You know? um, how would mankind react? It, it sounds, it sounded rather strange at first, and it sounded strange even to the media who were saying, oh my goodness, look, they must have discovered something and they're getting people ready for the message. Yeah. You know, because they, they, they've been out there looking and lo and behold, now, you know, we, we have to be ready to inform the world that we found this extraterrestrial life. Well, the fact they haven't, okay, they haven't found anything like that. And um, not even a microbe, okay? Uh, not even a strand of, uh, you know, uh, nucleic acid or anything like that. So, uh, <laughs> but in any case... Um, but it does seem strange now that they're starting to talk about how we're going to break the news to people. Like, what have they got up their sleeves now? You know, and uh, you know, what what's the message here? Uh, how are they going to try to get us to follow the quote unquote science? Their science, right? Um, their political science, as some are saying. So anyway, I thought it was interesting, and I thought it was a, a little bit of a, uh, of, I don't know, kind of a warning shot that this is where we're looking right now. We're looking for the theologians to work with, um, with us to find a way to market the message, to market the message to mankind um, that we're not alone in the universe, uh, evolution is true because life is evolved elsewhere in the universe, and this is proof positive, right? And uh, to get mankind on board to accept the fact that uh, we might even be subject to um, rule by wiser civilizations, that we might even be the product of another civilization on another planet that is by panspermia, you know, kind of seeded our planet to see what would, we'd, we'd grow into, almost as though we were like their garden, to see what could grow here. Uh, you know, I'm not making this up. The science fiction writers have been talking about these things for a long, long time. And, and uh, uh, you know, we saw in the movie Expelled, uh, Ben Stein even bring this up to uh, the question of... Uh, of uh, what is it? Des uh, intelligent design of life, human life, especially, um, um, to a man named Richard Dawkins, right? Mm -hmm. the, the kind of most recent uh, flagship of atheism in the world, right? Um, and and Dawkins himself brought up the question of panspermia that there, oh, there was this theory that uh, life came to us from other planets, and that's the origin of all life on Earth. And, but that was the funny thing about it. Ben Stein said to him, well, but again, I mean, if, if life had to be seeded here from another planet, 
would there have had to have been some kind of intelligent design of this life by another civilization? And, and uh, Dawkins, without thinking, said, well, yes, of course, there had to be some designing of life to have it come here. And then immediately he, he realized what he just said, conceding the issue of intelligent design, and immediately threw it into reverse and began sputtering and uh, fussing all kinds of excuses why it, no, right? <laughs> that what he just he himself just said was not actually true. Uh, and again, the, the reason they do that is because it has nothing to do with truth for them. It's a matter of propaganda. It's it's the narrative. That's all. Uh, every now and then they they actually sputter a word of truth and they practically gag on it, right? And they have to spit it out. And so it is with the atheism of Mr. Dawkins. But uh, in any case, um, um, so the, the fact that they're calling in these theologians, so-called, to discuss this matter of how we're going to market the message to mankind, that um, intelligent life exists elsewhere in the universe, um, or that any life exists elsewhere and evolved elsewhere in the universe, tells me that they're, they're thinking along these lines now. How are we going to use this for, to get the, uh, to further our purposes? Father, if I could uh, just point out, you know, we've talked about a lot of very weighty, uh, very serious topics on, on tonight's program. And uh, just this morning, I just wanted to, uh, to point this out. I, I, I saw a headline, I didn't dare uh, stoop to read the article, but I, I saw a headline uh, that said something to the effect that Pope Francis uh, recently gave a talk uh, or, or said something about uh, the, the, the uh, great terribleness of, of having too many pets or something to that effect. So while all of these things are going on in the world, I mean, we've talked about civil wars and, uh, and um, you know, abortion and vaccine mandates and, and all of these, these terrible things, the, the man in the Vatican, who is supposedly the greatest theologian in the entire world, uh, he's talking about pets and having too many pets. Um, Father, how silly can one man be? Pretty silly. <laughs> Quite silly. <laughs> I don't know if you, if you saw that, that article. But I mean, yeah, not, but not only that, um, it's true, it's pathetic. It's, it's really pathetic. pathetic. Yes. But uh, he must think that this is impressing somebody out there. It probably is. He must think that there are millions of people hanging on all of his words about having too many pets and taking it very seriously. And, uh, and, and, and like the sacrament of recycling and all the rest, he must, he must have uh, uh, all of these Twitter followers and all the rest who are just uh, hanging on his every word about whether they should turn off the lights when they leave the room or make sure to go back and check the tapas off or, you know, cut down the... the you know, how much water flows with each blush. And this, they, this is their religion. This is their religion. This is the new theology of the new religion, the great um, new uh, Francis Church of the world. Uh, it is uh, truly tragic, but this is what it's come to for yes. so many of them. Well, Father, any uh, any words of encouragement for us? We began the show by talking about the uh, tomorrow's the, the feast day of the the mm -hmm. Epiphany. Very well, I think feast. we had to talk about the spiritual things too. You know, we we see things happening that uh, again would I think uh, to any rational, objectively uh, thinking person 
give them pause to stop and really question. I mean, e even the person who, who has the rosiest colored glasses and just cannot see any uh, evil anywhere, right, who assigns the best of intentions to everybody, when, when they see uh, people, uh, you know, taking away the medications people can use uh, for outpatient treatment of, let's say, this, this COVID virus, and just taking them away, banning them, not only making them uh, basically unavailable so people can't get them, then when people uh, even, even resort to going to a feed store and buying uh, horse paste, to get access to ivermectin, then they then they mock them after after taking away the human use ivermectin, uh, so that people can't get it, and they're desperate for it because they believe it could save their lives and the lives of their loved ones, and people are so desperate that they go and they get this horse paste because it contains some ivermectin in it, then they're mocked by these people who took it away from them. It's cruel. It's sort of like it reminds me of of the guards. The, uh, the Viet Cong guards, who uh, are spoken of by Jeremiah Denton in his book, in his book, When Hell Was in Session, about his seven and a half years imprisonment by the Viet Cong, after, as a Navy flyer, his, his fighter was shut down, shot down, and he was taken prisoner. And how the, the guards would, would uh, I mean, it's kind of disgusting in a way, but take the food of the prisoners and throw it into the latrine and then mock the prisoners for going in and trying to pick the rice grains out. They were starving to death and mock them for going, doing that. It's what came to mind when I heard about them. They take away your access to ivermectin. They're persecuting doctors who, describe, who prescribe it for you. They're threatening to take away their licenses to practice, you know, and their certifications if they will dare give it to you. And then when you, when you have to go and, and get it from wherever you can, they mock you for using that, you know? And even uh, just bald-faced lie about how it has produced so many poison deaths and so on. Just pure inventions, absolute inventions that they know are going to be exposed and they don't care because they can still get the word out there to people and that's the last thing they're going to hear. They're not going to look listen to anything else anymore. Um, this is the kind of thing that's going on. And just recently now, we hear about uh, Joseph Biden now doing what he can to stop access to monoclonal antibody. Now, I hear these monoclonal antibodies are very useful and help one to recover from COVID and its effects. I, I hear this. I don't know the science of it, obviously. Uh, I don't know what goes into these things, but I've heard... Uh, not only from just medical people that this can be very helpful, but I've, I've heard it from people who have actually received it, that it did help them. Okay, that's anecdotal. It's not data. I understand that. But still, it's real. Okay. And that, that Biden is now saying, no, 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 we, we, there's no proof that this actually works. So they want to, he's talking about taking that away too. And I think, what a wretched man. What a wretched man he is. How blatant bald face he is, you know, take away anything that he has the promise of, 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 of doing these people any good. Force them to get that vaccination, right? Force them to get vaccines. 
no matter what. Demand it, absolutely. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be beyond him, as far as I'm concerned, to put a bayonet, point in your back, and to force you to get a vaccine. They're doing everything but that right now. So um, it just astounds me that... Uh, but then you get... You know, the totalitarians, they think it's wonderful. They, they think that's exactly what government should do, that that is what government is for. But those who think that that is not what government is for, they're going to have to say so. You know, they're going to have to, they're going to, have to uh, tell those who say that this is what government is for. This is left, the leftists now. They all say this is what government is for. There have to be those who say, no, no, it's not what government is for. And, um, you know, we have this going on now where we have the, they, they, they want to blame the pandemic spreading on the unvaccinated, where, the, again, the truth is not only different, but it's the exact opposite. You don't have the pandemic of the vaccinated, of the unvaccinated. You have the pandemic of the vaccinated. And that's it. I mean, everywhere you, you turn, you're getting information from this. And you're getting data on this. You're really getting actual data on this very subject. I mean, time and time again, we're hearing it reported. Even in the mainstream media, we're finding out about cruise ships, 100% vaccination, because you couldn't get on with it unless you were fully vaccinated. And they're coming down and uh, being kept out of port because of the... Of the uh, uh, infection of COVID in the in the crew and in the passengers. Uh, some of them are not being allowed to leave port for this. It's it's just pandemonium, in uh, and you, you hear about so many of those who got vaccinated to keep their jobs, especially in the healthcare field now, being sick. That those who laid off the unvaccinated are hiring them back at two or three times the salary, short term, because they have to fill the the roles of these, or they're sending in uh, member National Guard guardsmen to staff hospitals and medical centers, because again, they the people who are vaccinated are falling sick. Uh, they're they're even talking about negative immunity. That in the course of time, that's vaunted ninety five percent immunity that Pfizer said was true of its vaccine falls month by month, more and more, until finally it's negative immunity, where if you have the vaccine, you're more likely to be infected by the disease. Notably, their Omicron variant, right? Now, the reason why I'm, I'm going into all of this now uh, is because this is exactly what happens when you start with a lie as your premise, and that's what abortion is. Abortion is a big, big lie. And you start with that, and you get people to accept that as their, their major premise. There is no lie that is unbelievable. There is no lie you can't voice upon. They have lost their immunity against lying, you know. They have a negative immunity against lying. Lies, rather than uh, not impressing them uh, as evil, impress them as something positively good. They develop a real taste for lying, and even a passion for lying, an admiration for lying. That's where we are right now, because of abortion. And that comes from the loss of true faith. 
You see, we, we celebrate um, here a feast day tomorrow, the feast of the, uh, the feast of the epiphany of our Lord. And um, when we speak of the epiphany, we're actually talking about a threefold feast day, three events in the life of our Lord. The arrival of the Magi is the first of those three. But the, uh, the epiphany uh, is a manifestation. That's what epiphany means. Epiphany. In Greek, it, it, it talks about a manifestation of something hidden that is made known. In this case, the identity of the Christ child is revealed. And he's not just revealed to a handful of shepherds as he was made known on Christmas Day. Now he's revealed to the representatives of nations, the pagan, the pagan world, the world at large. That's why this feast day of January 6th actually is considered a greater feast day than Christmas, the nativity itself. In fact, the feast day of the Epiphany is third in rank of all the feast days. Uh, the feast of the resurrection, Easter Sunday being the first, feast of the coming of the Holy Ghost, Pentecost being the second, and uh, the Epiphany being the third, <coughs> the Nativity being the fourth, actually. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> but there we see the three Magi, as the scriptures tell us, bring gifts. And these gifts are very, very significant. That's why they are noted specifically in the sacred scriptures. Even to this day, we read about the gifts that these Magi brought, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And the fathers of the church from the earliest years have told us the significance of these gifts and what they say, what they manifest about Christ. Uh, they, they, the gold, of course, signified his, his uh, royalty. Um, the, the patriarch Abraham says to, uh, well, we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, okay, and then Jacob, the patriarch, saying to his son Judah that uh, in prophecy that the scepter shall not pass from Judah until the one desired of the everlasting hills has come. And this was understood by the Jews to refer to the coming Messiah that was promised. And that uh, actually Jacob was prophesying a number of things. Uh, Judah was not a king. He was one of his sons at the time, but he was prophesying that, that Judah's descendants would be kings. In fact, they became kings in David, right? And that, that, that scepter would be held until the world was ready then to receive the Messiah, for the, the people would, would, could look for the coming of the Messiah at that point, when the scepter had passed from Judah. You read this in the book of Genesis. So uh, the gold signifies that, that our Lord is of the royal house of David. And um, so it is with uh, the frankincense. I mean, the frankincense, again, is something that would be offered to a divinity. Incense was burned before idols by the, by the uh, pagans. Right? Incense was burned in order to uh, also worship the true God. Uh, they just had a sense that if you believe in something divine or some divine being, that you would offer them something costly, something lovely, something that would have a beautiful fragrance, right? Uh, 
Time and time again, we read in the Old Testament, as something rising before God as an odor of sweetness, right? So it was with their incense. It was something costly, a very delicate but, but sweet perfume that they might actually be worthy of paradise. And so it was offered to the divinity. Um, and the Jews offered that too. Well, the pagans brought that with them from um, their, uh, their homelands. They brought the, the most precious gifts they had, and this was one of them. The third was myrrh. And myrrh uh, is a medicine. Myrrh, even today, is actually being studied in some, uh, um, some universities. They're doing clinical studies on the, on the salutary per, uh, properties of myrrh, even against cancer, curiously enough. You know? But myrrh signified uh, death. It signified sickness and death. Because... Um, it uh, would sometimes be buried, be buried with the corpses. And um, whether it was a preservative of the corpse or was it, whether it was actually meant to offset the, the stench of, the, of a rotting corpse, I, I don't know. We know that uh, the women were going to the tomb of our Lord on Easter Sunday morning carrying about a hundred pound weight of spices and other... Uh, uh, well, aloes and so on, to bury with the body because that would be the normal way of showing respect for someone you loved, and it wasn't able to be done uh, the night that our Lord died. Uh, so, when our, when our Lord's body was buried. So, uh, no doubt, myrrh would have been one of those. But, uh, so we, we find that the gifts offered by the Magi actually symbolized our Lord's very identity, that he was, in fact, the, the son of David, right? Hosanna to the son of David is what they sang to our Lord uh, just the Sunday when he entered Jerusalem, Palm Sunday. Hosanna to the son of David, of the royal line of David. And the uh, incense, his divinity is manifested there, and the myrrh, his humanity, and his mortality manifested there. So that's the first of the epiphanies. And uh, the second of the epiphany, epiphanies is going to come in the future here as we continue celebrating our Christmas tide here. We are going to see our Lord at the banks of the Jordan River. And we're going to see another manifestation, a second manifestation. Uh, when at our Lord's baptism, the heavens open and the Holy Ghost comes down in the form of a dove, right? And the voice of God the Father thunders from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. This was a second epiphany of who this Jesus Nazareth really is. And the third epiphany happened just shortly thereafter uh, when our Lord uh, was at the wedding feast of Cana. And uh, the wedding uh, couple ran out of wine, a great embarrassment, but also a bit of a problem for those who were travelers and had a ways to go uh, and needed something safe to drink and all the rest, you know. Um, so it was a practical problem. Uh, you know, Our Lady asked, this is in St. John's Gospel, Chapter 2. You should read it. Our Lady made the simple observation, they have no wine. Of course, she understood the significance of what she was saying. And our Lord did too. 
Woman, what is that to thee and to me? My hour is not yet come. He says that to her, and then immediately she says, do what he tells you. She, she understands what we read, but we don't, right? Because there's a communication between the two of them that goes beyond the mere words that are recorded there. Otherwise, it makes no sense whatsoever. You know, it doesn't make, it's a total non sequitur. But Mary, our Blessed Mother, understood. Our Lord understood her. She understood very well when he said, my hour has not yet come, that this was a momentous event, that if he worked a miracle here, it would be a turning point in not only his life, but in her life too. That that quiet, happy life they had together, mother and son in, uh, in Nazareth, was coming to an end as soon as, well, as the gospel says, he manifested his glory. That's the third manifestation. That's the third epiphany. When he manifested his glory by this miracle of turning the water into wine at the wedding feast of Cana, he actually um, revealed the power that was within him. Um, and he set his steps then toward Calvary, the three, three and a half years of public life that would take him to the Last Supper when he would complete the miracle by changing the wine into his own blood and where then he would go to Calvary and die for us. So these three manifestations at the nativity, or, uh, I'm sorry, at uh, the childhood of our Lord, the early infancy of our Lord, with the, with the Magi coming to worship to begin with, and then and our Lord's adult life when he stands in the banks of the Jordan and is baptized by John the Baptist, that epiphany, that manifestation, and the third at the wedding feast of Cana constitute the triple epiphany that we're actually just starting to celebrate tomorrow, that we see unfold for us throughout the rest of this Christmas time. So, you know, uh, we see God making special arrangements for the Magi to come safely and go safely. We see God sending the star to lead the Magi. We see that God has his own plan. They follow the star. They follow it to Jerusalem. Jesus Christ is not born in Jerusalem. But where would you go if you were expecting a newborn king? Right? And they went. And uh, they brought word to Herod. But if you read the gospel, it says Jerusalem was all astir because of their arrival. The word was out, right? Now, Jerusalem had been kind of all astir over a number of things. I mean, the shepherds were not silent, right? After uh, uh, the night of the nativity, they certainly weren't silent about these things. So there certainly was quite a bit of buzz there. The arrival of the Magi caused some wonderment among the people. And uh, Herod found it necessary to stomp that out. He thought he'd use the Magi, right, to lead him to the Christ child. But God warned them. He is in charge. He is in control. He warned them. And so those who had arrived in the country was in the, in, at Jerusalem with such a stir left very quietly and withdrew back to their own countries. Herod was thwarted by that. Herod was thwarted by uh, God warning Joseph, take the child and his mother and flee. Uh, and uh, the, this, the, the arrival of Herod's um, soldiers murdering the children of, Bam, of Bethlehem 
pretty much uh, suppressed the excitement that the shepherds and the magi had brought because now it was thought, well, it's all over. This is how it ended, right? Whatever else you've heard about angels singing about the birth of a Christ child or magi coming looking for a newborn king, it's over now because Herod went and snuffed it all out. So they thought, right? So they thought that it was over. It wasn't over. It's just beginning, right? It was just the beginning. So we have to see in that the hand of God's providence that that they really are not in control as much as they think they are. As much as Herod in his arrogance fancied that he was in control, he had no control. He made a fool of himself. And um, But it is God who then has this control, and he will work this plan. But uh, for the rest of us, uh, all we can do is be faithful, right? And try to cooperate with the grace of God to be part of that great plan. So let's do it. Okay, sounds good. For us, that means being the best traditional Catholics we can be. Absolutely. Well, Father, very uh, blessed Feast of the Epiphany to you tomorrow. And... Well, thank you. I wish you the same and all of our viewers, too. Mm -hmm. And I apologize for my poor voice here, too, and uh, whatever hacking uh, or <laughs> coughing okay. I did. Thanks for your indulgence there. You made up for it with your wise words, Father, so thank you very much. Well, Thank God if he produced some wisdom in spite of me. That's great. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.